A couple of evenings ago, we began <coughs> exploring the foundations of mindfulness. And we explored the first foundation of mindfulness, the body in the body. I'd like to begin this evening's exploration with a question. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? This evening we'll begin by taking a look at the second domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings, Vedanupasana. This foundation of mindfulness is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes in through each of the sense doors, the body, touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and the mind door, thinking, provides some specific information to the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through the sense door contact with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and uh, clearly classified into three groups. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, what is most often called neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment, or aversion to sense door experience is a result that often very quickly follows along directly from these feelings. So for instance, when one experiences a pleasant feeling, in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object. For most people, there's an almost immediate emotional attachment to the feeling, to the object, or both. When the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, the desire to get it back or to get another one comes up quickly, either quite overtly or subtly. A craving for arises, with craving usually immediately preceded by some degree of dissatisfaction, and sometimes also very quickly followed by the state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being is disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness. 
which translates in modern language as stress, mental and physical stress. The experience of craving itself is experienced as some degree of a burning contraction. If we really see it, experience it, and see it clearly. So again, stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, most people immediately experience emotional dislike or some form of aversion, maybe fear or boredom or hatred or anger or disappointment. We want to get rid of or get away from the object or the feeling or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. And so again, we're experiencing stress. As we begin to sense, see, and know our experience more and more clearly, we find out that so much of the stress, so much of the suffering in this life comes directly from one's relationship to experience experiencing pleasant and unpleasant feelings. When the feeling is at least to some degree neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral we could say, often, often, I think quite often actually, the tendency is to ignore what's going on, not connecting to the present moment's experience, and maybe accompanied by a subtle or not-so-subtle state of not wanting. Not wanting, not interested in being with the experience of that moment. I think it's quite safe to say that most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention, whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. If it's not intense, we often just don't notice. We might think nothing's happening. And so again, we're craving something or experiencing the aversion of boredom or both. Without intimate and careful, mindful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally they have the potential power to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change. The very same object that produced pleasant feeling in the mind, sometimes just within moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind, and vice versa. So again, we experience attachment, clinging, and various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering, remembering. The connection that mindfulness offers us to see things just as they are.
So a uh, personal story in relationship to this from uh, quite a number of years ago and a three-month retreat that I sat. In those days, there were shelves in a small back dining room at the Insight Meditation Society for uh, yogis, for meditators, to put their special stashes in. And I had a special stash uh, on, on one part of one of those shelves. One day I found a note for me um, from the person whose stash was next to mine. And at that point I had no idea who this person was. And the note was offering me some green tea from his stash. A very pleasant feeling arose and was noticed. Ah, pleasant. A gift being offered to me. Me. And I like green tea. I answered the note with a very uh, polite thank you. The next day, another note appeared on my stash, offering me a hat. This person had noticed that I was going outside without one, and it was beginning to get cool. It was fall. It was beginning to get cool outside. Well, not such a pleasant feeling arose in the mind with that note I felt impinged on not liking the attention at that point but very politely answered the note and said thank you I have a hat then the next day a third note appeared on top of my stash it was a question about practice and a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in the mind, followed by a very quick, uh, unmindful reaction in the mind to write back a not-so-polite note. (laughs) But fortunately, mindfulness and um, wise discernment kicked in, and I didn't write back a nasty note. I didn't write back any note. I just simply relaxed and let go and didn't respond at all. And at that point, the notes stopped. No more notes. At the end of the retreat, I figured out who this person was and spoke to him. And he said he had gone through quite a similar process of pleasant and unpleasant uh, uh, feelings (laughs) and was very grateful, he said, after going through a a fair amount of inner turmoil that I didn't answer him the last time. He said he, too, was very happy to not be writing any more notes. As I think you would all probably agree, that when you feel pleasant or unpleasant as a result of contact through some sense store, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object, nor is the feeling within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling is in the mind. So what is it that is most often the root of the feeling that arises in relationship to our experience? 
in my three-month retreat story, the mental feeling tone and the subsequent uh, action in answering the first uh, two notes and the mental feeling tone followed by a reaction in my mind to the third note were all very clearly coming from a place of self, coming from a place of me, kind of a capital M-E. When we begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are within our own mind, that we ourselves are really primarily responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that we really can't blame others for the way that we feel. What for many of us are habituated storylines, such as he made me angry or she made me feel terrible or he made me feel so happy or this place, these people make me feel so peaceful or so miserable. As we begin to pay a really careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength, their power, and they begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, blaming others for our pleasant or unpleasant mental feelings isn't really realistic. It's not the way that things really work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we have about ourselves and about others, the various beliefs we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of or not capable of, how we define ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go of, to relinquish various beliefs that we have about our bodies, our minds, our emotions, beliefs that we've maybe held on to and stuffed into the crowded closet of our mind. And instead, right now, just simply pay attention to our experience just as it is in this moment. It's so simple, really. It's hard to believe that this is all it takes. Although... As you know, though it's simple, it's really not so easy. The potential illuminating aspect of practice in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feeling is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the neutral feeling, 
that we can, in moments, just see, experience, and know bodily sensation, visual form, odors, sound, taste, and the manifestation of various thought forms, and know the attendant feeling tone. And that just be that. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart and mind aren't disturbed. It's actually a moment of ease, a moment of peace. And another uh, illustration through a personal story. Giving birth for the first time, uh, 49 years ago, was my first formal teaching and practice in mindfulness, although it, it wasn't called that. The Lama's birthing method was a training in being very fully present, awake, and aware in the process, the birthing process. That was happening in and of itself, and that I was certainly very involved with, of course. Throughout the training, we were told that any resistance to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant, which I very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began. Getting myself out of the way of it, while at the same time being totally present with what was a very intense physical process, I remained engaged and aware in the midst of it all, which was not at all easy in the way that we usually think of things being easy. But really, it was quite okay. And actually, mostly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant feeling. Selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting and really, truly filled with awe and wonderment, which was pleasant. A very, very powerful lesson that has continued to inform me over the years. The Buddha tells us we're happy when we're mindful. There was a pervasive uh, kind of happiness that accompanied me throughout this birthing process that I now clearly understand was there because I was very mindfully present in and with the process. When you engage with a full presence in the physical and mental experiences that are happening in your body and mind as this retreat unfolds, and when any of these experiences show up as being pleasant or unpleasant, <clears throat> or maybe neutral, one aspect of our practice is to be 
mindfully aware of them without making something out of it. And this is a very important point. Being mindfully aware of it without making something out of it. Meaning without interpreting or speculating, without analyzing or evaluating. As we meet and connect to experience with an unfettered mindful presence, we find open-hearted interest and authenticity, which is what helps to bring clarity, the clarity of seeing and knowing of our experience directly into our practice. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering. Because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or push away, avoid, or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with, a more, with more balance and more equanimity and thus less attachment, less aversion and identification is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation of the feelings in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through each of the six sense doors with what we can call bare awareness. With bare awareness providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors or states of mind. And this being the third domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. Chitta nupasana. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to our experience. So, for example, we go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display here in retreat. Maybe there's attraction, maybe there's aversion to the sights and smells. And maybe the mind, the mind wanting more of something before you even finished what's on your plate. Or the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this hour. Or which shirt to put on today. Or maybe the marketplace of thinking. For instance, 
what and how should I report, uh, do my practice report, my practice interview today with Sayadaw or with Marcia? And maybe rehearsing this over and over and over again. With an intent of mindfulness, we have the possibility of recognizing that often these attractions, aversions, and ponderings are rooted in old conditioned habits of needing to be in control or needing to get it right or wanting to be noticed or be approved of or thinking that maybe there's not enough because surely more of this or that will make me happy. All of this is actually based in some degree of fear. In a moment of mindfully seeing and knowing, mindfully seeing and knowing this whole process and the fear, we might just then simply be able to relax, let go, and spontaneously respond in an appropriate and easeful way in relationship to the particular situation. And we may have to do this a number of times before we really get it. Living here in Taos for many years now, a place that many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace, and as you know, uh, have tasted, beauty abounds here. I, uh, when I first moved here, went through a period of practice uh, for some years, and it was uh, quite a number of years ago now, where I'd walk down the street looking into the various shop windows and watch my mind and body, awareness of seeing, just seeing, seeing various forms and colors with a bare attention. And then I would notice the coloration of the mind of wanting, of leaning into, and even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need. So greed coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A very good practice in the midst of the marketplace. Any marketplace, really. I continued this practice for some time until I found myself more and more often just seeing the forms and the colors, followed by simply, joyfully, and appreciatively bearing witness to the beauty. To sustain and deepen in our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart and mind that are required of us are honesty and humility. Pretense, self-deception, and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So, for instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion, 
It doesn't really matter at all if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states, bringing mindfulness right to the greed or the fear or the anger or the sadness. And as you know, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without pretense, without self-deceit, and without self-judgment, you don't try to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who has, uh, had, was a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, said this about humility. This is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath. I hope, she said. In light of uh, Vimala Thakkar's words, a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself. A number of years ago now, he said he was taken window shopping in some big city to an area where there were lots of small shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and mechanical systems. And the person who took him to this part of the city knew that he was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical mechanical workings of things. For instance, some of you may know that he uh, likes to take apart watches and work on them and then put them back together again. The Dalai Lama said that he found himself looking in the windows of these shops, at first just simply seeing with an open curiosity and interest. And then he said all of a sudden he realized that he wanted everything, that he wanted all of it. And he said he didn't even know what any of it was for. He said, I just wanted it all. Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires and attachments? Or how driven am I by my resistance and aversion?
taking a look now at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation, your inner world of meditation experience. So for instance, a moment of deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing calm, no thought about it, just it as it is, just calm, just tranquility. And then, maybe quickly, followed by grasping. Wanting calm, wanting tranquility to never leave. Maybe even some degree of fear around losing my tranquility. Without judgment, directly seeing and knowing this experience. Directly seeing and knowing this experience of attachment. This too is very much part of our practice. Mindfulness is able to know the mental factors or coloration of the mind of wanting, greed, within the greed itself, or the colorations of anger or hatred or fear or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself. Maybe from its very arising and its very particular characteristics and how it acts, its changing nature, and maybe seeing its ending, knowing its ending, its cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight or dullness or some form of aversion. And as I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath, a bodily sensation, a movement, a visual image, a sound, a taste, thoughts in the form of memories or plans or projections or fantasies or images in the mind. Thai monk and Buddhist scholar Venerable Analayo says this, The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati, mindfulness, forms the foundation for satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Mindfulness, sati, thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. And he goes on to say, This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles obstacles to meditation 
into meditation objects. Practicing this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from a Buddhist perspective, there's a long and very detailed list of the many and various mental factors that may quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience. The degree of perception and distinction with such a minute detail regarding each and all of these states of mind really isn't absolutely necessary for our practice here. It's really enough for for you at this point to be mindfully aware of the more usually or ordinarily experienced colorations of any given moment of consciousness as they arise, as they quickly change, and as they cease. So for instance, mindfulness knowing, and this is a short list compared to the Abhidhamma list, mindfulness knowing delight, calm, joy, kindness, faith, or liking, dislike, judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear or anger or hatred, irritation or appreciation. Knowing any of these mind states in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, moving, touching, or thinking. And again, a reminder. The essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation, no judging or evaluation of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, states of mind, seeing and knowing them in themselves, the colorations that come up, in relationship to bare experience that comes in through the six sense doors. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas. Dhammas in this case can be translated as 
the truth or the way of things or the natural laws. This domain of mindful awareness can be grounded specifically in any of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, may also be grounded in the five hindrances, sloth and torpor, restlessness or agitation, doubt or the grasping or the aversive mind, as Saido spoke about so clearly last evening. The particular wonderful and illuminating specialty, we could say, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that whatever our experience is, it's seen through the doors of Dhamma. It's seen through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things. Whether experience is in the physical or mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of truth. So for example, speaking briefly this evening about just one of the insightful doors that particularly relates to our practice in this retreat. This is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially pay attention, pay attention to and recognize and clearly come to know that every experience of mind and body is always changing, is impermanent, anicca. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything we perceive around us, begins and ends, arises, and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural truth. What appears to be a steady flow of experience, even with the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. As Saidal mentioned last evening, the reality of body-mind experience, and even consciousness itself, can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though it's happening with an ongoing continuous flow, when in reality it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing away on the most minute level, second by second by second. And some words from the Buddha. bhikkhus or yogis or retreatants I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana listen to that 
and what yogis is the way that is suitable to attain, towards attaining Nibbana. Here, a bhikkhu sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, sees mind, mental phenomena as impermanent, sees mind, consciousness as impermanent, and sees mind contact and whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Every experience is anicca, impermanent, which is the first universal characteristic. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And so, because of this, we continue on through our lifetime searching for something, some experience that will finally satisfy finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha. It's usually translated as suffering. And this is the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know within this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta. The truth that all experience all phenomena is selfless, is totally interdependent and constantly changing. In other words, is totally contingent in its existence, both within its own seeming solidity as well as within its seeming set or static place in this world. Our body really being an immediately available example of this, with all parts and all functions being totally interdependent and all of it constantly in flux. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, sustaining self. As we begin to directly experience and know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, this third universal characteristic of anatta, the not-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The not-self or emptiness of self, of all experienced phenomena, all experience and all phenomena, shows up really quite naturally and often in unexpected and subtle ways. And we begin to understand that no matter how hard we try, there's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. Even our often tightly grasped, seemingly set-in-place self-identities, the positive or wholesome identities and the negative or unwholesome identities. As we begin to intimately 
experientially see and know these three universal truths, our relationship to our life begins to change. Wisdom, equanimity, relinquishment, and the natural flow of a creative and compassionate life quite naturally begins to blossom within this seeing and knowing. And we start to relax much more deeply into simply and more clearly being here with things just as they are. In a conversation with his student, Megia, the Buddha offers an important and really clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. And these are the Buddha's words. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. And so as we go along in our practice, and when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to freedom, the simple and beautiful door to liberation, which we may experience just very briefly in moments, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive throughout our life. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, resides within everything. Simply here to be seen, to be known. If we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly, if we just take the time to really be present and look carefully. The truth is right here for us to directly see through every single sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart and with each and all of the phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara is nibbana, or nirvana, because it's actually a Mahayana uh, way of saying it. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, including your ordinary life here in retreat. Within the whirlpool of samsara, if we metaphorically stand still, are cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, in that moment, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, by meaning ignoring, by ignoring, by being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant. 
We're no longer caught in the whirlpool of I like it or I don't like it. No longer caught unaware in the whirl of continually and unwittingly moving around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness is the tool, the medicine that allows concentration, joy, equanimity, and wisdom to blossom. Mindful awareness is the primary tool, the primary medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, we take the medicine to purify the sickness and heal ourselves. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, an undisturbed heart. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing and passing, coming and going. No different than anything else in the world. Nothing to argue with and nothing to cling to. The Venerable Sayadaw Upandita speaks about the fact that essentially there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is maybe a great relief to hear uh, for those of you who think that uh, you have to practice many things, many Dhammas, to be liberated. In Pali, the word for this one Dhamma that the Venerable uh, Upandita is referring to is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance, and which can be understood as it's elaborated on in the commentaries to the suttas as mindfulness. So from this perspective, mindfulness is the one dhamma that we need to practice. In relationship to vigilance and the open-hearted receptivity of practicing with a clear, focused mindfulness, I'd like to offer you some words from Carlos Castaneda. And these are his words. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets, without expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of awe, said Carlos. We don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted, 
quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The Buddha tells us this, rooted in careful attention, careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention, with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factors of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. And the Buddha goes on. Just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the roof peak, so too, when a monk, a meditator, develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all the other factors of enlightenment, which are a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, he and she, he or she, slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. And closing the talk this evening with a short uh, poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust mote lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.